Hello and welcome to another episode of the University of Bath Thought Train podcast. I'm Sam Bradley, today's host. Today I'm talking to Dr. Philia Allen from the Department of Politics, Language and International Studies, whose book, The Invisible Camorra, recently won the 2017 American Society of Criminology Outstanding Book Award. Dr. Allen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So, first of all, um, explain, if you can, as briefly as you can, how... Italian history and organised crime are linked? So, not an easy question to start with, thank you, Sam. (laughs) Um, Basically, um, the development of the Italian state um, has developed in such a way that we can see that there are organisations that have found vacuums in areas where the state was developing. We've got to remember that the Italian state is a relatively young state, Unification took place in, in 1860s, so um, there are still a lot of disputes around how the different mafias developed. But historically, there is a general consensus that during the kind of state building process, state unification, there were areas where the government, the emerging government, wasn't able to necessarily control various activities, and therefore in Sicily in particular, there was a group of individuals who came together to help protect. Uh, certain farms while people were away in Palermo. So history is an important factor to try and understand how these criminal organisations develop where and when. Um, We talk about Italian mafias generally, we tend to forget that in actual fact there are very different regional mafias. So the one in Sicily is called Cosa Nostra and Mm -hmm. is an island and uh, its origins are very much a kind of rural origins compared to the mafia that I'm interested in, which is the Neapolitan Camorra, which emerged in the um, in the city of Naples, and in particular, it is said uh, in the prisons. Having said that, I think historically there is there are ongoing arguments about how and when, um, but Italian mafias must be seen, I think, very kind of locally to a certain extent, even if they have an international uh, spread. Very good. See, you you handled that fantastically. Um, so, how did you get into researching this? <clears throat> I've been asked this question quite a lot recently and I, I kind of, last time I answered the question I sort of took a step back and said that was actually quite a silly way of um, arguing or putting it. Um, so I'm going to try and put it, put it a different way this today. And this try, is the scoop. This is, this is the one where I try and kind of make it sound a, a kind of coherent story to a certain extent. Um, there are various factors I think that kind of um, help uh, explain why and how. Uh, one is my mother is French, so when I grew up um, I was brought up in a French context and had the possibility of going to a European school near Oxford, which meant that um, I did French as my first language, English as my second language, and then when I came to cho- choose the third language, instead of going for German, which all the French and English kids did, I went for Italian. Having said that, my father uh, was a professor of politics at the University of Reading, and his big area was Italian. But it was only until the age of 12, where I started to study the language, that I really started to get interested. Then, not having progressed very well, um, in other words, I really wasn't going far in, in my language learning process at the age of 15, it was decided that I should go off to Italy to practice my Italian, and I was very fortuitous to end up in uh, Capri, of all places, which Mm -hmm. is a fantastic island, which I'm sure everybody's heard of, in the Bay of Naples, and um, spent um, 
many summers going and uh, being in, in Capri, which is a lovely place, and also safe because it's an island. So there's a certain amount of, for teenagers, it's ideal. It's not very good for babies, but it's very good for young teenagers who can, you know, have their own life and go around. And so I spent many summers in, in Capri, and um, as you can imagine what's coming, I met a young man, and I fell in love with this young man and started having a long-distance relationship. And when I went to university, there was a kind of reasoning as to, I did a politics degree, if I want to do something that is going to keep me in Naples, what can I do? Um, and at the time, there was the massive Tangentopoli, there was the massive murders of uh, Giovanni Falcone, Paolo Borsellino, the whole kind of underworld in Italy exploded. And there were a lot of state witnesses who started to collaborate with the state, which meant that for the first time there was a lot of data. And therefore, the kind of combination of wanting to be in Naples to see my young man who became my husband and doing something new and fresh meant that the Camorra was an obvious, was an obvious, um, was an obvious subject. Um, subsequently, a lot of people have always said, oh, but you're only doing what your dad did. Um, and I remember um, the first interview for a job in Glasgow is what I was asked. A big professor of Russian said, but you're only repeating what your dad said. And I didn't have the courage to say, actually, you haven't understood what I'm trying to do, because in his book, he doesn't mention the Camorra. He wrote an important book in the 1970s that looked at politics in Naples, which was quite an important book because no one else had done it before. Mm -hmm. And he was a British academic, so as an outsider, he could say things that he'd never said before. But he doesn't mention the Camorra at all. There was like one paragraph. So when we sat down and talked about what I should do in terms of you know, undergraduate dissertation and then eventually PhD, you know, we sort of said it would be good for, to follow up and say, actually, he didn't mention it, why didn't he mention it, and what does it look like today? So I hope that gives you an overview of the reasons... That's a really good answer. ...really why, why I got into it, and then all of a sudden it kind of took off on its own, I suppose. Mm -hmm. That was a really good answer. Another one, two for two at the minute. <laughs> okay. I mean, you said that there was a lot of data suddenly emerged very, very quickly, I guess. Yeah. Um, what are the challenges when you, I mean, how do you even start, do you just go to the police and say, hey, I would like to look at this, I guess it's public information, some of it, or? It's a really good question. Um, that's a really good question because it's the same type of question that I ask myself when I want to try and look at organised crime in the UK. The difference with Italy is that there is a lot in the public domain, mm -hmm. but you need to know how to channel into that. You need to know how to build up a, a, a contact and a relationship of trust with your interlocutors. So... I spent a lot of time, and I What's still. What's an interlocutor? Sorry. Well, the person that, that who you know, but your person you're talking to. Ah, right. So, um, Italy is a very strange society in a way because there is a lot of you know having to be introduced by the right people to a certain extent, but I spent a lot of time in the kind of public prosecutor's office, trying to explain what I was interested in doing. Now, a lot of people just weren't interested, weren't bothered, but there were quite a few people, um, public prosecutors, anti-mafia judges who who sort of turned around and said, well, you know, what are you interested in, what, what, are you, what do you want to do? And there was one in particular who at the time was doing quite an important trial because there had been a murder of a journalist in the 1980s and finally in the mid-1990s they, they were prosecuting the, the clan. And he sort of said to me, you know, what is it that you need to make you know, your study a viable study? And I said, more than... What, what I need to do is I need to talk to people. I can't go into the middle of Naples being kind of, you know, middle-class white, white English girl uh, and talk to just anybody. That doesn't happen. But if I could access what we call pintiti, what we call um, collaborators, i.e. people who've decided to turn their life around and help the state, or state, I think in English they call them Queen's Evidence or state witnesses, if I could talk to people who've been there and who've decided to help the state, then I think that that would give me more of an understanding from an insider's perspective. 
And so he very kindly sort of sat down and said, right, you know, these are the people who I've helped to become state witnesses. These are the people who are helping me in my trials. Why don't you just, you know, write the approach to the appropriate authorities and just explain what you want to do and see whether that's possible. And there were quite a few that came back saying, yes, it was possible. So I was able to talk and have long discussions with, you know, two or three people who had been in the clan, who'd had decisive roles in the clan. And they'd flipped. And they'd flipped. And to have that time, just not necessarily for what they said, but for more that human contact. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one in particular I always remember. Um, he was considered to be the actual physical killer of this journalist. <clears throat> and he was there. And I'd done quite a lot of reading on the, around the psychology because there's also a certain amount of what they want to tell you. They're not going to tell you everything. There's the whole thing about their truth. Mm-hmm. and what they want to tell you and what they want to reveal and how much they're going to show off and how much they're going to be. And I remember sort of trying stupidly thinking, you know, you've also got to remember I was, at the time, I was just you know, a PhD student trying to sort of work it out. And I wanted him to articulate and basically said, you know, I am the killer. I, I, am, a, I am a killer. I'm, a, you know, a mafia killer. And, and I remember desperately trying to sort of, you know, work around the, the questions and get that out of him. And he, Lure him out, like. Yeah, yeah, and trying to sort of make him... And, of course, in a very thick Neapolitan accent, sometimes it's very difficult for me to understand, but I never managed. And he said, no, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. And at one point, he went for a toilet break, and there were the three police officers who'd brought him to, to the location and who obviously had spent time studying him and helping him through. And he lo- they looked at me and said, you know, uh, he's not a boss. He's just a stupid killer. And worse than just a stupid killer, he's so thick that they don't even get him to do the ambush. They just get him out of the car because he's the one who can, you know, cold-bloodedly shoot. And then they put him back into the car. And they said, that's what he is. He's not a boss. He's not, you know, he, he, he's not an intelligent person. He's just stupid. But he's the one... The tip of the spear, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, you know, and he can't even do the ambush. So he can't even drive the car. But he's the one who can just get out and just very coldly shoot. And, and, you know, and it's, it's for me, it's that kind of contact with people who I wouldn't necessarily meet every day, but to have that exchange. And uh, subsequently, I mean, I've interviewed quite a lot of people, but I've never used it in my work because it's not so much, you know, the sensationalist aspect. I'm not a journalist. I'm just trying to kind of put together a kind of picture that, that sort of can explain or can be analysed in such a way to sort of say, right, you know, what did you? What was your role? Why did you become a criminal? Um, how did you behave? How did you engage with other people? Um, so yeah, so it must be incredibly dangerous because, f- I mean, if you have a someone like this guy, this mm, killer who sure. you say is just a guy who sure. gets out and he shoots people yeah, and that's sure. his thing, sure. And he's sat in a, in a cell, I guess, and yeah. you come in, sort of asking these questions. I guess there's a, perhaps from his point of view, there's well, who is she? They've said that she's this, but perhaps she isn't. Perhaps she's trying to do whatever. Yeah. It must be incredibly dangerous because he must. I think you I know, think, still be in contact with his people, or maybe not. Or so. So the way that it works. I mean, I've often been asked this, and I must admit, up until now, I have never felt too much in danger. And I'm not saying that that might change, but it's the idea that you've got to think that these criminal organisations are extremely one proactive, and by the time that I started to look at a specific historical period, they were way ahead of different things. They were doing different things. So you imagine this guy in a cell. Well, he wasn't in a cell because he'd, mm. t- he'd turned state witness. So he was basically um, in a house, under protection, probably being guarded, probably be given a certain amount of money to be able to live on a day-to-day basis, but he's being looked after by the state. 
Um, my introduction to him would have been through his lawyer, who would have explained what I wanted, what I would have done with the information, had also my judge friend who looked after him and mm-hmm. kind of gave him a sense of where he was going. So it was all done in a very kind of, I found, quite a safe environment. You weren't flying blind, you had no, and I wasn't. Yeah, and I wasn't necessarily going into a district where there were all people looking out and seeing who I was. Um, I, I later, uh, in 2010, for my book, one of the people I interviewed was the wife of quite an important boss, and I interviewed her in Rome, and I, I remember being in this very busy police station, and she walked towards me with her three bodyguards, and I walked towards her, and then there was this kind of life, lots of different police officers and lots of different things around, are happening around us, and I, and I remember that walk towards her saying and thinking, nobody knows who she is. You know, nobody True. nobody knows who she is, nobody knows what we're about to talk about because, you know, in Rome, nobody knows who the hell she is and they wouldn't even be able to recognise her. And the only people who really would recognise her are the, her family unit and the people who've got a certain amount of revenge against her or vendetta against her. So I don't feel, you know, I do kind of try and do things in the kind of... Uh, my safety is important. It is. It is kind of... And also I think that... I'm not an investigative journalist trying to root out the latest organised crime activity. What I'm trying to do is to put it into a kind of historical, sociological and political context to understand Mm -hmm. how and why it happens. So they were being prosecuted for um, a murder, and we're talking about the prosecution and the case in 1996, think that the murder had taken place in 1984. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of a time lapse. It's kind of, you know... I'm working behind the, what they're doing, but so and unfortunately the judges and the police officers, because it's always you're always playing catch up, and you'll never catch up with them unless obviously you've got under you know undercover police officers etc. But you know, as, as as somebody who studies the phenomena, I'm not studying the latest case. I'm studying something that happened relatively. So even in my book that you mentioned, you know, I got until 2015. Mm-hmm. Which is where you know where it all kind of stops for me, and even two thousand fifteen, there are a couple of cases that are ongoing. But yeah, how how far ahead are they? You say well they're they're ahead again of what they were doing in two thousand and fourteen. How well, I mean, what does what are they into? Are they are they into every type of crime, or is it primarily you know murder? Or is it primarily blackmail or? What's well, the what's the business? It, yeah, I mean again, that's a kind of interesting question because. They're very territorial. Italian mafias are very, very territorial, and we tend to forget that. So when we talk about you know international mafias zooming left, right, and centre, it's fine. But what I found with the Neapolitan mafia was that if they don't have a local territory, there's no point. You know, there's no point going off to Monaco and investing huge amounts of money if you can't take the money from a certain location. If you don't have power and control in that specific location, you've got to remember that these organisations are predominantly interested in power. Now, power is a very abstract concept to a certain degree. It's about being able to control the local community, Mm -hmm. the local politicians and the local economy. Over the love of money, for example. Yeah, but it's this kind of, yeah, power and money are interlinked. Um, It's a very difficult thing to say. It's a very difficult concept to explain because it's just power with all the different... So I've got a German colleague who who wrote a fantastic book and, and I think was really kind of quite interesting perspective of saying, you know, Italian mafias have something very much in common with the Third Reich, which is a massive, Interesting. yeah, massive kind of um, metaphor to put a parallel to put together. It's if a you want. It is, but it's to say basically they both want to impinge on people's human rights, 
And if you don't live in a little village in the south of Italy where to open up a business you have to pay a certain amount of money or you're being told what to do and you don't kind of get the fact that you can no longer breathe, it's very easy for us to sit here at the University of Bath saying, well, what do they do, etc. If we don't get that aspect of the everyday life, which is the parallel with the Third Reich, which is the idea that you know they're both out to kind of squatter anybody's human rights. So coming back to your question about what they're, what they're doing, it's kind of... It's, there are basic activities and then there are more sophisticated activities. Um, and I think they're into everything like, you know, drugs obviously is a massive area. Counterfeit goods, I don't think we really understand the extent of counterfeit goods, in particular in the UK to a certain extent. Is that like clothes? Clothes, um, electronic gadgets, telephones, Apple Macs. Um, but also the thing that's starting to worry people to a certain extent is obviously things like medicine. So, you know, counterfeit pills, for example, if you're on the pill and your pill is not working, you're going to have a problem. Yeah. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff that you can get on the internet, you know, or, or even anti-cancer drugs and stuff like that that are being counterfeited. There's also counterfeit money, um, wow. uh, euros and stuff like that. A lot has been made um, of uh, cybercrime in this country, and that's mm -hmm. a really interesting one because it comes back to the idea that mafias, if they need territory, how can they deal with cybercrime? Um, but what they're using the internet for, which I think is a really interesting recent development, is basically to have virtual fights, virtual goading, virtual kind Message of... Message boards. Yes, and to sort of... So there was this really interesting anecdote a couple of months ago where there'd been an ambush and they'd missed their target. Mm -hmm. And the guy's kind of gone off to, to, to hospital and then he sort of had a fantastic photograph in hospital saying, you know, he didn't even get close. Yeah. You know, I'm not dead, I'm the lion and I'm out to get you, I know who you are. So there's kind of the, the face, Facebook and the internet is being used in a different way. You put that on Facebook yeah. saying, yeah. I'm the member of this yeah, and yeah, this yeah, happened, yeah, yeah. come at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, know, they don't even need to say, I am so-and-so, it's just, I am here, right. you have got me the line isn't dead you know and there's all these mm -hmm. kind of different coding and words because words are really quite important to kind of so you know it's, it's the it's the use they make and it's the kind of way they think and and they are into you know as i say uh, investing in luxury hotels tourism wherever they can recycle money you know opportunities are, are and that's why europe is for them at least is, is really kind of a, an interesting place to be able to recycle their their, their profits in spain in the building boom uh, in Germany, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of the world is theirs, and that leads me nice and nicely into another thing I wanted to ask you. My next question is: This seems a little redundant now to ask, but what is the influence outside of Italy of organised crime? Well, apparently, a lot. Even if they're so-called legitimate businesses, they can be backed with illegal money, and those legitimate businesses, um, I think I read this in one of your conversation pieces, can be used to launder dirty money. Sure, sure. So I think that there are quite a few things to say to that, really. One is, clearly, terrorism is a massive problem in Europe and is on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And therefore, terrorism tend, has tended in the past to kind of um, take the limelight, which, you know, it's not a very nice thing to say, but has tended to kind of... The political agenda, the policing agenda has tended to be around dealing with mm -hmm. the development of terrorism, whether it was homegrown terrorism, whether it was you know, um, super-terrorism as it's called. So terrorism is in a way kind of caught public attention, policing attention, which means that these criminal organisations who are broad will behave like businesses and therefore 
will seek not to use violence to in order not to attract attention are being given a relative kind of I would say space to deal and to do what they they want to do another thing that you need to remember and this is a major problem I think that we have in the European Union and that the UK has and that there isn't really a solution as yet to the problem is that Italy because of its specific history has a specific law that prosecutes it prosecutes what we call mafia association so anybody related to the association can be prosecuted because it's not the act in itself which is what we have in this country where you know if you kill somebody then you are being prosecuted for murder here in Italy what we have is the idea that because you are part of the association and you are benefiting from that association's power whether it's the law of silence whether it's money you might not directly have shot the person but by being part of the association you can be prosecuted for perhaps having helped or having influenced or having participated so in Italy we have a specific law that is dealing with members of the association that law does not apply to other places in Europe Okay. In other places in Europe, you're looking at specific crimes or specific, um, how can I say, intentions to undertake a criminal act. Here, it's the association in itself. So you do have some people who unfortunately sometimes go to prison and they're not members of the association. Mm -hmm. But you also have a lot of people who are being kind of taken in and being prosecuted because they do have, they are support systems, they are indirectly related. It's kind of catching the whole network of, of complicity compared to just the person who shoots or the person who says, go and shoot that person. So it's a different mentality. And that mentality, because it's Italy, and because Italy has been, I think, looked at badly for a long time, is seen as kind of an Italian problem. And it's an Italian question. And it's not seen that actually, you know, mafias, when they go abroad, they adapt, they, they, they kind of fit in, they kind of hide, mm -hmm. they kind of, you know, are kind of like chameleons to a certain extent, they will fit into the context. Ultimately, what they're interested in is profit and money, and they'll get that and they'll do that, whether it's by bending the rules or by hiring the right um, solicitor or accountant that they will do that because they've understood how it's okay to behave in a violent way in Italy that's that's part and parcel of the way the phenomenon manifests itself but it's also understood the importance of how you what how you behave when you move and what's important there so um, it is I, I, as I say in my book I don't want to over exaggerate I don't want to say <gasps> every country every region every every town has an Italian mafia what I'm saying is I, I fear that we're not necessarily identifying it when we could be identifying it or we're not having those conversations because we're seeing it as an Italian problem and we're seeing Italy as kind of a back a back backward country rather than maybe looking at Italy and saying actually if we have mafias abroad it's because Italians have been very successful at prosecuting and limiting their own inward workings, and so they're going abroad. They move away from. They Italy. move away, so they're investing abroad. They're they're moving their money abroad because in Italy, I, I talked to you about mafia association. There is another law which is kind of quite controversial to a certain extent. Is that you can arrest somebody before they go to trial purely based on the fact that you believe that they're socially dangerous. 
So this Define is fine. Socially dangerous. Socially dangerous is that the, their behaviour can have their behaviour can cause an impact on the local community. That they can you know use violence or that they can uh, in any way impinge on on the the well being of the local community. So mm-hmm. if you're identified as socially dangerous, they will arrest you. They'll put together the court the court the, the case while you're in prison, and then you will be taken to court. Now in England that never happens. No. You know, whereas and that's seen as kind of quite controversial. They can also seize your assets if you're socially dangerous even before a trial so all this kind of pre-trial um, kind of uh, activities is seen as pretty controversial because nothing has been proved but I would argue that in a way you know you can argue that that you know people should stay outside prison as until they're, they're proved guilty but again on the kind of historical kind of understanding of the way the phenomena works this has been seen as a way to kind of block it or to at least try and cut off some of the kind of heads from from the legs if you see what I mean and again it comes back to your first question about how history helps us to understand why why certain laws develop over over others it sounds like uh, at least the the the, uh, the law you were just telling us about it sounds like one of those laws that's very good in theory Mm. it makes sense that if you have someone within the community and especially if you're from Italy which is a very community driven country let's believe Mm -hmm. um, it makes sense that you can take people out Instantly, yeah, and remove their influence. Yeah, but then in practice, it's like you've just said. It actually involves taking them out, dropping them in jail when they could be innocent. Yeah, and there could are be. cases, and there are cases, and and that's going to happen. That's going to happen. But I think that that law um, understands the the kind of how can I say that the, this association, the the importance of the association, and and the harm the association can bring. And in this country, we have a similar kind of law where we have a list for people who are members of terrorist groups, but we don't have an actual mafia association law. So we've often got cases where there's one case, and I think I mentioned it in my book, where there is a a guy who is wanted in Italy on mafia association, and he's arrested in Woking, and he's taken to court in London, and the the judge looks at the, 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 the warrant and why the Italians want him, and that law does not exist in the UK, and there is nothing similar, so as far as the judge is concerned, he has to be freed. Yeah. Because he's innocent before uh, before being and proven he, guilty, and he's and he and, and they don't know what mafia is. <sighs> so nineteen ninety five, he's let free. Retrospectively, he went on to do lots of kind of investment in 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 the UK. I was able to interview him where he said, you know, we were up to no good, we were up to no good, and we basically moved. So he went to Woking. Somebody else went to somewhere else because he said, if we split up, at least they'll only go for one of us, and the rest, the other, the, you know, the other person will be able to carry on the criminal activities. So it, it's, it's a complex issue, and I think that, you know, the way that these mafia bosses and, and advisors work is that they're very intelligent, and therefore they're also using the complicity of white-collar criminals to find the loopholes and to move around mm-hmm. and to be able to, to get away with it when, when they can. Obviously, it's not a very nice life, you know. You're either dead before you're 20 or you're in prison. Um, so yeah. it's kind of, you know... I don't think Hollywood helps with that. I think it's things like The Sopranos, as good, as good as it is, I know it's the American mob, but you wouldn't get a show like that about mm, ISIS, for example. And I think that goes back to what you were saying just now about our focus is on terrorism, international terrorism, which is totally right, but it sounds like we should be doing more. And Do you think things like... I, I'm, I'm going to bring up The Godfather mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I have to. Do you think things like that help or hinder the fight do they glamorize it or do they you know how do they affect how people judge organized crime as opposed to international terrorism or something like that 
So I think again, that's a really good question, Sam. It's um, it's what I think is is something that we should be looking more at. To actually, we can talk about it, and I, and and I will give you an answer. But I just worry that some of the stuff that I will say, you'll say, well, you know, mm-hmm. how, how evidence based is what she's saying, and I think. Oh, you go. I'll, I'll stop interrupting. No, no, no. But, <laughs> but but I think but I think that we we um we don't necessarily have evidence to suggest these things. So we can say them, and we can we can kind of perhaps predict or, or, or suggest or, or, or kind of you know I, I was I, the one of the first guys I one of the first mafia kind of criminals that I interviewed I remember we had this conversation where he said you know we look at the godfather as a model of how to behave and that struck me because it then led me to sort of really think about where reality starts mm-hmm. and where fiction stops because the godfather is written by somebody who you know, it all came from his head. He must have done some 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 kind of study or some, you know done some kind of research. But how much research has he actually done? So, I I think that there is space to do a study to try and unpackage. You know, what the criminals are, what they do, how they behave, or how they portray themselves, and how much they are influenced by the Godfather, the Sopranos, Goodfellas. At the moment in Naples, there's this ongoing debate. And it's a really difficult one, because on the one hand, we have Roberto Saviano, who has written a really important book on, on the Camorra, who brought the, the Camorra to the international limelight, if you want, that people started to, to be able to understand. And he made it manageable, and he made it understandable for a non-specialist kind of specialist public. And mm-hmm. you know, my, my mother-in-law, who's got nothing to do with organised crime, read it and understood what it was about. So you know, I think Saviano has to be given credit for that. Mm-hmm. There are lots of other polemics, but... The one debate that's going on at the moment in, in Naples is the fact that he, uh, there have been the kind of uh, his TV series. So we have Gamora, the film, and then there are these off sort of TV series that have taken place. And I think they're into series three now. Um, because his writing is based on prosecution case, one of the criticisms has been is that there are no positive characters. Okay, because it's, yeah, because it's the prosecution's case, and the prosecution yeah. just wants one end, which is put people in prison. So there's no positive kind of counter character, no counter police officers, because it's the prosecution's case. The other aspect, which is the one that I wanted to highlight with you, which is the more worrying one, is that there is a huge amount of violence being used in these TV programs, and the whole kind of polemic is, you know, how much of the violence is real and how much of the violence is actually then influencing the young generation. There is an ongoing reformulation at the moment and war going on in Naples with this younger, more hungry, more violent group because all the old bosses are in prison. So we've got a lot of things going on in Naples and there is a question as to whether, you know, Saviano is helping with his TV series because what we've got is this kind of crude violence which one could argue, to a certain extent, is a model for these younger people who are looking at it and who are taking example. My problem is not so much that, which is understandable. You know, people look at television, they're influenced, they're inspired, whatever. My problem with novels and and fictions, to a certain extent, is how it normalises things. We become... Things become acceptable. The level of... I mean, I tried to watch one episode of the Gomorrah in preparation from one of my lectures and I couldn't I couldn't it's the level of violence is just so strong that you either stop 
or it just becomes randomly normal and yeah. we're no longer shocked by the level of violence and the fact that actually those are people's lives. People are being killed. It's not just being killed. There's a whole implication around, you know, the father of so many children. Do you know what I mean? And it's a normalisation and that's where I have a real, to a certain extent, problem of wanting to understand, you know, I do want to understand how much a book or a TV series inspires young people and it would appear that they are in a way there is some kind of uh, relationship between these TV series and, and the way the younger generation are modelling themselves but also to understand how generally as a society we are becoming uh, we accept violence as though it's normal and I think that violence is not at all normal and we've got to stop and say you know, why are there all these guns you know, all these guns have not got any licences. Why are there all these guns? Why are people shooting themselves? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how the internet is helping us to sort of become more and more isolated and more and more remote and therefore less socially interactive or socially talking. And the normalisation of violence, I think, is, is, the, is the worry that I have, that, you know, we're all becoming extremely violent and we don't care. Um, one example of that, and I'll stop, is um, two or three years ago, I can't remember now whether it was even five years ago, um, there is a tendency for the younger generation, the younger kind of, uh, I call them hotheads in Naples, to go around like in a kind of cowboy western, you know, just, uh, shooting, shooting in the air. air, shooting in the air. And it becomes more and more frequent. We've had another couple of days ago. And in a way, it's defying the state. It's to show that the state isn't there and it's defying the local boss. And, and a couple of years ago, and it, it, all this was taken on CCTV, so we can see what happens on CCTV. In a very um, a central district of Naples, um, this group come out and they start shooting and they go and shoot under the house of the boss who's just been released from prison. And on the way back, one of those sh one of those bullets is randomly goes and shoot goes into the heart or into the lungs of a Romanian, if I remember correctly, busker. Okay, who just stopped singing the guitar, using this, um, playing the guitar, and was on his way back into the metro station. On the way back to metro station, he catches this bullet, and the CCTV camera then picks him up on the floor, dying with his girlfriend screaming and people just passing by with their phones. Normalisation. And you look at that, and I discuss that very often with my friends, and you know, some of them saying, well, you know, in their situation we would have done the same because we'd have been scared to stop. The irony is that 100 metres down the road there was a hospital. Now, I'm not saying that that is any judgement on Neapolitan society. I think it's a judgement on the whole of society, of people on the phone passing and necessarily stopping to, to help or to, 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 to... You know, and I think as a society we're becoming more and more kind of distance from, hang on, this poor man, how can we help him? So here it's kind of, you know, in relation to the Camorra and how people are scared to get involved. I suppose more generally it's about how society as a whole is, is, is scared to get involved with anything now that is slightly different or odd. But it's kind of, you know, it, it does make you ask a lot of questions about, you know, groups and individuals and how we behave and, and what is socially acceptable, but also, you know, how we also should react and how we should say no to, to violence. But desensitisation article is a, uh, uh, argument sorry, is a really interesting one because it gets, uh, gets mentioned a lot with video games, a lot sort of if you sit kids down in front of a thing where they shoot foreigners for 15 hours a day, they're probably going to be you know, less, uh, less able to process that when it happens in real life. Same here, someone's dying in the street and someone who's maybe watched the Gomorrah looks at it and says, what happened? People only get shot on TV, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's more a judgment on human nature, I guess, that that unwillingness to put put your head above the parapet and 
and help, I guess... If, if but also the, the fear, perhaps. I also think Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say. The, the fear is so strong and it's so common in these areas, these lads go around letting off the guns. Yeah. No Should one wants, I get involved? Yeah. Should I get involved? And, and you know, I don't know how, how, how you kind of help society to actually say, yeah, you know... I do get involved, um, but it, yeah, it's the desensitisation, as you say, it's the kind of normalisation. Um, that so, only happens on TV. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. and the TV, and then the video games, as you say, and it's about mm-hmm. sort of saying, no, actually, this is real life, we're, hu- we're still human, we're not robots yet, um, and that's where I, I, I think, you know, um, the idea of the fiction, the idea of the stereotypes, a couple of years ago, I was interested to try and understand, you know, British police officers and their perception of the problem. And I did a few questionnaires to say, what does Italian organised crime look like? Would you be able to look at it and see it and recognise it when it came here? And actual fact, no, because those strong, the Godfather is a very, very strong model of mm-hmm. what everything looks like. Um, and yet... On you know, both sides, the cops are looking for yeah. a, you know, a big guy with a rose and a hat. And white shoes, yeah, exactly. exactly. And the criminals, on the other hand, are looking at that and going, oh, well, he holds his gun like that, or yeah. he uses this kind of technique. Maybe I should use that, because exactly. then people... Are... Exactly. So exactly. how do we fight back then? Is it, is it about re-education, or is it more boots on the ground? I think it's... Um, I, think, I think education is a starting point. Um, there's this ongoing discussion, I was saying, Saviano at the moment in Naples is, is kind of saying that people don't want to talk about these, you know, these incidents of the Camorra um, because that would show that you know, the state is failing, that the politicians are failing. And I must admit that I think that things are changing to a certain extent. There's a lot of work on the ground in Naples. There's a lot of voluntary associations of of kind of NGOs of you know activities only last There's week. There's an art project, right? Yeah, and only, and only last week we had a, a circus from from Barra who came to Bath and, and showed. And you know, at the end of the show, one somebody asked them to tell their stories, and it was very everybody was in tears in the end. You know, there were two or three of them who who were clearly going off the rails, who were you know into burglary, into thieving and robbery or whatever. And this project all of a sudden put them back on the straight and narrow. And you should have seen one of them when he said, "When I realised that I could actually." Uh, get a salary by being a clown. I said, right, I'm buying. You know, I'm paying into this. This is this is great. You know, I'm actually getting money to be a clown. Yeah. Um, and it's a kind of education, and and and, you know, it it, it is difficult because organised crime pay well. Yeah? yeah, you know, they pay extremely well. They pay instantly. It's easy money. No tax. Exactly, and also to the to the, the the idea that you know, um, one of the people that I did talk to, sort of saying, you know, being offered so much money to kill somebody compared to having to go and work so many hours, it's clear that it's got a disadvantage over legal sphere. Uh, it has a sense of belonging as well, not just financially. It's it's yeah. these kids, maybe fatherless or poor or whatever, and someone says, very "Well, much. you can be in our gang, and we'll have your yeah. back forever." Yeah. yeah, and you have to do this illegal stuff, or you can go and work a nine to five. Yeah, and yeah. tax and Absolutely. be in a place where you're unhappy. Absolutely. What would you pick if you had no other options? Absolutely. You know, you were... Absolutely. I I think that's there is also that element, and that's why that circus group was so interesting because the the guy who organizes it is the father figure and he takes it on and sort of say you know one of them was only eight when he joined and he's now you know 17 or 18 um the other one is studying to go to university because he wants to become a nurse you know these are real success stories and i think there are a lot of them around um it's just going to see that and it's a slow process it's not instant it's not it's not overnight, you know, it's about educating, it's about trying to put those seeds down about there being an alternative 
to, to the, the life of crime. You know, when you say um, the Berlusconi governments and, and the kind of right-wing governments have always kind of made an easy sort of, yeah, get more army in the, in the streets and stuff. And, and that kind of supposes that, you know, the anti-mafia judges aren't doing their work. And I think that's really, that's a wrong way to, to put it. I mean, you know, they're, when you meet some of these individuals, they are so hardworking. That's all they do. They they really, you know, it's a, it's it's a it's not just a job for them. It's a real passion. It's a real conviction of you know of taking the state and making sure that the state rules are being being implemented. And and there's a sense of duty, which I I must admit I've not really met anywhere else. Of kind of you know this is not only a job. This is about a, 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 it's a calling. Yeah, it's about a civilization. It's about you know giving you know believing in in principles of democracy and transparency and equality and opportunity and not letting what I consider to be in a way a shadow of capitalism because you know it's capitalism that produces this um, so it's a product that organized crime is a product of capitalism I think there is I think there's an argument to be made I mean obviously there's the clear argument of globalization and to be able to travel to invest also using uh, internet banking and all these kind of things but I still think that in a capitalist world based on profit based on money um, there is an element also of greed involved. I, I do kind of question whether capitalism does is uh, a product or a liberal, liberal democratic slash capitalist system does produce this offshoot of, how can I say, a uh, form of kind of crime. I, I do wonder whether in a different type of society it would exist. One thing that I do want to stress, however, is also the idea, and I've, I've said this quite a long time for a long time now, how... You know, criminal organisations like the mafias flourish in liberal democracies. They have more of a harder time in authoritarian regimes. So the historian, the historian Paul Ginsberg always argued that Mussolini nearly managed to dismantle the mafia by putting them all in prison, by getting rid of you know their basic human rights and really cutting it off. Then the fact that the Americans liberated the big mafia bosses when they liberated Sicily in 1944-1945 relaunched the whole thing. But they clearly like the kind of conditions of democracy. Democracy is also another element that helps them. But I do think that capitalism, the principles of capitalism, do reinforce the similar um, principles that these organisations have, like profit, like money, like greed. Uh, and I do think that they kind of combine well together. They're kind of interconnected in a, in a, real, a real good way. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Like, listen, share and subscribe. I hope it makes sense. Oh, well, it does now. We shall have to have you back on again, actually, because I could probably talk to you for another hour about what we spoke about in the last five minutes. Thank you. This has been the University of Bath Thought Train. Thank you very much for listening.